you're listening to the Southern U Podcast, brought to you by Darton Archery on the OKS Podcast Network, with your host Taylor McMurtry, Jeremy Ferguson, and Matt Brock. Come on in! <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, welcome back to, I don't even know what number we're on now, is it nine, number nine? I yeah, think, number, maybe. Episode number nine, the Southern U Podcast. Uh, we are um, tasked with the mission of educating those who are interested in all things related to land here in the southeast. My name's Taylor McMurtry. I'm also joined by the man, the myth, the Eldeer legend, yes. Matt Brock. Guys, y'all got to cut that out. Nope. Uh, no, no, it's, it ends today. <laughs> it ends today. I'm Matt Brock. We All that AL deer crap's yes. got to go. We're going to take a poll online. No, right. who wants us? I don't to keep give a it? flip what people think. <laughs> it, it's just Matt Brock. Give the people what they want. Matt. I don't know that they want that. Oh me! And then also, uh, Mr. Jeremy Ferguson, Mr. Uh, I got real, I got no claim to fame. I mean, he's a real estate aficionado, uh, wildlife <laughs> biologist, all around. All around Joker. I don't know. Like, something. Yeah, something. I'm definitely something. something. Yeah, something. Um, yeah, so today is a special episode. We are uh, not live. Obviously, we're going to produce this at a, a release it at a later date, but uh, we are back in the killing cabin. Uh, that's good news. The bad news is nothing's being killed today, nope. though. We are, uh, we are not hunting today. We made the drive over here to meet Matt, um, kind of get this episode cranked out before we head on up to NWTF here in a few weeks. We're pretty mm-hmm. excited about that, right? Fellas? Oh, yeah. It'll be my yeah. first time up there. I've, been, I've never I've been, been. I've been to ATA oh boy. Uh, and yeah. stuff, but I've never been to uh, NWTF. And it's a lot closer to Nashville. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're uh, if you're in the Nashville area or in the southeast, come hang out. We'd, we'll be there and may do a show or two, and uh, who knows what all kind of mischief we'll get into. It, it's a good show. We're going to really test Taylor's limits on his production and editing. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. the sheer number of turkey calls that will be in the background oh, is my I didn't even think about that, y'all. Yeah. Hey, at least it's not geese and ducks. And that's a fact. That's true. Yeah, I didn't think about that. So, yeah, we'll all have a nice <laughs> learning experience. <laughs> um, I was trying to think of before we jumped in the episode. Any updates? Uh, oh, I know that we talked about on the last episode. Um, the Instagram giveaway, and that is still absolutely going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, we are just waiting until we get the bow in our possession before we start promoting it. We just wanted to make sure, you know, it's a brand new item. Uh, we don't have one. Uh, none of us personally have one to shoot yet. So you're going to get a bow. Whoever wins this contest is going to get one before we you do. do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so uh, if you didn't get a chance to, to uh, check out the last episode, we are going to do an Instagram uh, giveaway. For a Darton Sequel 33 uh, bow, it is kind of the the next in line for the Prelude 32, which Jeremy shot this past season. Um, it's a great bow, and so obviously we're haven't had it had one in our hands to to actually put it through the the ringer yet. But if it's anything like the Prelude, uh, you guys are going to be in for a real treat. No, oh, it's so awesome. Whoever wins, because mm-hmm. uh, you kind of get the best of. You know, best blend of all uh, aspects. You get speed and forgiveness and accuracy, and it's well, just uh, one of the easiest shooting bows I've ever owned. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I set Jeremy's bow up, and literally three shots. Mm-hmm. It was perfect bare shaft bullet hole. Like three shots is all the adjustment it took. So, um, and it is 
cooking with a <laughs> 470 grain. Yep, 470 grain air. I don't. The only thing I don't have in my shop is a chronograph. Um, but I've got pretty much everything else that anybody would need to uh, set up and tune bows with. And I would really like to know, just curiosity. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to know how fast that arrow is moving because it is cooking. Uh, absolutely. But just stay tuned for that. Um, like I said, it should be, we should get the bow here in a couple of weeks. And like I said, you follow us on social, you'll know all about it. Um, as soon as we can release details. So, uh, but today is a special episode. Uh, this is, uh, something we put out a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, uh, on some of our social channels and asked you guys for your request. So this is going to be a viewer slash listener request episode. And just so you know, as always, uh, these guys have not been teed up at all. They have not, they don't, they don't know what we're going to talk about. Nope. Um, and this is not really, this, this episode doesn't have a theme like our other ones tend to. Um, so all of these questions that have come in from you guys are just kind of all over the place. Some of them are habitat related. Some of them are more about specifically about whitetails or about harvest, about, you know, all kind of stuff. So, um, we are, like I said, pretty excited to kind of jump in and answer the questions that you guys seem to be most interested in. Matt so, and I are scared. Yeah. Oh, they, yeah they are. I'm really, I don't Being like blind. this. I don't like this at all. <laughs> Being blind is, is tough on us. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, you get honest reaction. You do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's what I think people appreciate, honestly. Um, so, I guess uh, you guys ready? Got anything else you want to add? Can't take away from, but add to? Mm-mm, I'm good. Ready? No, I don't think so. Let's jump in head first. All right. So the very first one from the listener request. This question says, what effect do ATVs slash vehicles have on deer, even if you never get out? Now, what I'm, I, I, we're going to have to sort of project some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming what this person meant when they asked the question was, even if I don't get out of my vehicle, if I'm just passing through the property and continuing on my way, what effect does that have? I'm assuming. Now, I could be totally wrong on that, but that's kind of my thought. Is And that, uh, that's a good question. We, yeah. we get a lot of questions like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and I'm interested to see what you have to say. Fortunately, I think it's a pretty easy answer. Yeah. It depends on what you do consistently. If you're mm-hmm. on an ATV or you're riding through a property in your pickup and you're doing it consistently, I don't think it bothers the deer. But if it's new to them, I think it bothers the heck out of them. Mm-hmm. I've seen properties where about the only time they ever used an ATV was to go to and from their food plots or their shooting houses. Mm-hmm. And in that case, the deer associated that activity with danger, a threat. Pressure. Right, because every time I hear that, I smell somebody or see somebody mm-hmm. on sure. the edge of this field um and it also depends on how often it takes place deer get really accustomed to Absolutely. motorized vehicles oh yeah sure. and especially if you're feeding from them mm-hmm. um if you're feeding off of an atv utv truck Absolutely. they hear that and they know it hey it, yep. and it don't take long no uh, baiting's only been legal here what three years mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that we had the 100 yards not a line of sight but uh you know over there where i'm where i hunt on the lease that i've got myself uh, you can drive in there and we, we're not in there all the time, but we're going in there filling feeders within a few minutes on the cameras. When yep. I go fill a feeder, I've got a deer standing there at the feeder and trying to figure out if there's corn on the ground, yep. or feed on the ground that mm-hmm. they can get to within minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally speaking, I was going to say the same thing. Um, and I may have even responded. I feel like I did. Um, 
on uh, the comments and one of the reels that we posted um, someone asked about it like hey man how do I explain this to my dad you know like I, that this causes a problem and I, it can cause a problem like you said if they're not used to it it can definitely be a problem but I've seen it be almost the total opposite end of the spectrum where if every single time they hear that vehicle or that ATV whatever mm-hmm. fire up then they know that you're filling a feeder up. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost like ringing a dinner bell because mm-hmm. same deal. Like we'll have deer, you know, a particular property in Jackson County that I used to get to hunt. <laughs> the, the owner of the pro- uh, place up there, he would always take a side by side up to fill feeders, and literally you could you could like see still see tail lights in the frame of some of his trail cameras before deer were stepping out there wanting to mm-hmm. see if there was something. Mm-hmm. To eat. And it's just like you know, what are what are they used to? If they're used to it, then mm-hmm. they'll they'll check it out. Um, I think that's pretty straightforward. That might be the easiest. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. if if of course it's hard to do if you don't live on the property or close by. If I knew that I was going to be riding ATVs and whatnot to shooting houses because of limited mobility or something mm-hmm. like that, uh, I would make a concerted effort to be on that property consistently with a truck or an ATV. Yep. So those deer were acclimated mm-hmm. to that, and it wasn't something that just started – two weeks ahead of bow season and goes through, unfortunately, February the 10th. And <laughs> Sore subject, guys. Yeah. Very. Uh, and, and then stops, you know, because it's – I have seen it. Now. I've seen it shut activity down if you have a property and you never show up on an ATV, UTV mm-hmm. vehicle, and all of a sudden people rush in there the week before season starts and they're hanging stands and they're doing this and they're scouting and then they rush back the next weekend to hunt. Deer activity – goes down mm-hmm. because they're not used to that sure but if you're on the property working and doing things throughout the year it doesn't seem to make much yeah difference. I, I think even some of you guys that have been hitting us up about public land type stuff i mean that's kind of something to take away from that question there even on public land you'd be surprised at how close you can hunt to the road mm-hmm. and still have success because the deer they're just used to it you know mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have, i'm not saying that you should or shouldn't use your own judgment and be a woodsman but you don't necessarily have to go hike five miles deep to kill something. You know, you can have an opportunity to harvest stuff very close to public roads, you know, to transportation yeah. stuff. And I've, I've worked with some folks in the past that, uh, you know, they were there in their trucks a lot, but they wanted to go in ATVs mm-hmm. during hunting season. Guys, those things sound a lot different. Yeah. That, that ATV different. sound, you know, it rings out through the woods for hundreds of yards. Mm-hmm. When a pickup's easing down the road, if it's not, you know, don't have loud exhaust or something like that, they're relatively quiet. I had much rather be in a club or in a setting where we were able to drive pickups around and mm-hmm. not side-by-sides or four-wheelers. And mm-hmm. one property that I hunt, um, we use EasyGo Yeah, carts, that's even better. They're, they're yeah. silent. Mm-hmm. So, yep, creeping along. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be the easiest answer that, we have our easiest question that we have so great far. So, so they get harder from here <laughs> they could i'm not saying they do i'm just saying they could it's <laughs> kind of like uh if you guys watch hot ones they go progressively through the hot wings you know and they get oh, worse yeah. and worse yeah. <laughs> it could be like that who knows the southern new podcast is brought to you by darton archery for over 70 years darton archery has been leading the way in archery innovation with over 30 patents spanning over 60 years, it's easy to see why many archers and bow hunters have chosen to shoot a dart. Darton's patented dual sync cam system gives the archer one quarter inch draw length adjustments, 
adjustable holding weight options ranging from 85% to 65%, and the super easy to tune e-system for quick adjustments and perfect aeroflight. For more information or to find an authorized Darton dealer, visit dartonarchery.com. That's D-A-R-T-O-N-A-R-C-H-E-R-Y.com. Uh, yeah, second question here says, oh, this is a good one. I like this one. What is the proper buck-to-doe ratio on a piece of land? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Uh, what's so, proper or what's realistic? There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, I know what I would say here. I'm no biologist. I'm just a bumpkin, you know, guy from Marshall County that doesn't know what a deer looks like. But um, I'm going to let y'all do it first, and then I'll give you mine. But, but well, that, That's going to be goal-oriented. It, it really is. Yeah, so it, it depends on what you're looking for. Uh, ideally, you know, if I'm looking and it's not necessarily a trophy managed place or especially an enclosed situation, I would prefer to have two and a half to three does per buck. I don't want the rut so intense that I'm having more mortality from bucks fighting than I have to. You're going to have that, but that – you know, once you have butts competing more and more and harder and harder, uh, that interspecific mortality rate mm. is going to go higher. And you're already losing bucks to other things, you know, hunting mortality, occasional predation and cars and everything else. So I'd rather have a few few more does than bucks. Mm-hmm. Let's hear from Mr. Brock here. Well, I'm curious. I'm curious. I've hunted properties with a wide array of, of – you know sex ratios Mm -hmm. um the most intense and enjoyable to hunt to me are the ones with a about as near one-to-one as you can get Mm -hmm. at least during Mm -hmm. the breeding season um in order to achieve that it really depends on what kind of habitat you have you can support high numbers of deer Mm -hmm. and still have a relatively balanced ratio on good soil fertility and great habitat Uh, if you don't have that however You've got to be pretty aggressive on your harvest, especially your doe harvest. But, you know, I'm realistically in, in um, most of the areas that we hunt, you're going to be looking at one to two or one to three. Mm-hmm. One buck per one, three does. Yeah, one okay. buck per three does. Okay. Yeah. And that's like, and again, I know, I think I would probably pull from what both of you guys have said. I think it's goal-oriented. Mm-hmm. It's also what habitat you have because mm-hmm. what you may want may not be achievable right, like right. It may not be oh happy. yeah you've got to be realistic with what you're dealt with right and you know i had a a professor at, at jacksonville used to say it all the time hey you can only play the hand you've been dealt that's right period mm-hmm. you know it doesn't really matter about anything else but um but i, I would say like from a if you're trying to, to put down mature bucks you're probably wanting as close to one-to-one as you can get because mm-hmm. odds are statistically, well, what does that mean? It means that if this doe is hot, odds are she runs by you. She's bringing a buck with her, mm-hmm. you know, probably. But now from, you know, from a harvest perspective, that might be awesome because you get your eyes on or get an opportunity at lots of bucks. But is that is that the best for the deer herd? It, or yeah. or is that rut like you were saying? Does that make the rut so intense and so no? no. So so the best scenario in the wild is a one to one ratio, because you have a short, intense breeding season 
that is one and done, it's over mm-hmm. in a short window. When you have two, three, four, five, and in some places you may have six or more does per buck, they're not all going to get bred that mm-hmm. first cycle. Right. So there's more competition. It just it gets it's drawn out. Period. It's a very long period. And like on this property right here, we've already got bucks that are grouping back up together. They look healthy. They're doing great. Mm-hmm. And 20 miles down the road, sex ratios are out of whack, and they're still hammering you know, chasing after does, fighting each other, getting run down even more, losing more weight. Mm-hmm. You don't want your bucks to go through that stress. There's a lot of social stress that comes along with a high deer density and especially a, an out-of-whack sex mm-hmm. ratio. Gotcha. And that can lead to actually it, it's hard for people to understand this, and they don't no matter how much you try to explain it to them. People have argued with me till they're blue in the face, and I might have got blue a time or two. Mm-hmm. Um, but when – when you add that additional social stress to the herd, you have lower recruitment rates with a higher deer density than if you knock that density back and mm-hmm. got that sex ratio back in and gotcha. check. You have healthier deer producing more fawns, and they're producing them in a tight window. One of the reasons that coyote, coyote depredation is so bad in the south is because we have a long breeding season, a long breeding window. So fawns start dropping, and they continue to drop for 45 days, mm-hmm. 60 days in That's some cases. That's a good point. Yeah. If they all drop within a 10- to 20-day period, guess what? You're not going to lose as many because it takes a while for those coyotes to catch up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I don't know. I've never thought about that before. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, cause, well, and I've had a lot of people on Instagram go, you know, whenever we were talking about southern rut, like what brings does into estrus every year, they're kind of hardwired to do that mm-hmm. at the same time on the same schedule no matter what. And, boy, some of you guys got fired up about that, by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, they <laughs> think what they want to. Fine. No, I mean, it's yeah. wrong. Yeah, right. I mean, it's fine. It's no big deal. It's just yeah. – but uh, people are like, well, explain why I see spotted does in October. and I, I mean, spotted fawns in, in October, and I see spotted fawns in January. You've got a six-month breed. That's right. it. Right. You've, you've got, exactly. You've got, you know, these does that are – the skew the, the ratio is so skewed one way, and, they're and not getting bred, keep, you know. Keep this in mind, too. Some of those people jumped on those opportunities like, well, he said this, it's the gospel. No, we said that average breeding peaks mm. at a certain time. That does not mean at all that breeding is not taking place before or after that. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's I think that's how some people interpreted what we said. That's right. not what we said. Right. So, you know, you have your peak breeding, and in a, a balanced herd, most of your does will come in during that 10 to 14-day window. Mm-hmm. And if it gets unbalanced and you got a, a sex ratio skewed heavily toward females – then you're going to have deer coming in later and later and later, and you just you have a mess. You have spotted fawns all the way through season. Right. See, I, I'm a little – this is where Matt and I actually disagree a little bit, which doesn't happen a ton, Uh-oh. but it does happen. I don't technically want a one-to-one. Like I said, I, I prefer mm-hmm. a one-to-two maybe a little bit better, and that comes from the captive side of, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. my career, which is – much longer than than mm-hmm. the wild side, um, being with game and fish and whatnot. I worked with a lot of high fences starting my career and all the way up until, you know, just a few years ago. And uh, on those herds where we were, I mean, we could pretty well identify almost every deer sure. within, you know, certain cases. Where we, When we got to one-to-one or even greater, two-to-one, you know, two bucks per mm-hmm. doe or anything like that, we had such high mortality rate that I didn't I didn't prefer it. Now, we were looking at it from a future management because we're we're trying to grow 
200 inch deer where we're trying to you know have a balanced herd have a good rut and kill sure. kill good deer um but when we got to one to one or greater our mortality would go up typically about 10 percent okay so we we wanted to back off to be below that but there was also significant investment there that didn't want to be lost sure and, and it's also different than a free-ranging herd it because is. you are still at the mercy of what your neighbors are doing mm-hmm. so if you're not controlling large acreages thousands of acres it doesn't matter yeah you can shoot for a one-to-one or one-to-two or whatever uh you may or may not achieve that mm-hmm. makes sense that's good stuff though i like kind of i'm, I'm glad that i've my initial thought there wasn't too far off <laughs> you know <laughs> now and then i'm like you know See how I line up with these guys, make sure I'm not way out there. So that was pretty good. Um, third one here, how to design locations for bow hunting when making food plots. I thought that was a very interesting question because not just in general, setting up on travel corridors or something like that, but if you have not, I'm assuming, again, we're sort of projecting a little bit with this question to say that there's, there is no food plot here, I plan on making one. All right, so what do I need to do and how do I need to set that up in order to be successful bow hunting? I've got my answer. I'll let Boy, you guys that's go a, for it. That's a, but that's a lot of homework. It is. Mm-hmm. You can't walk out through the woods and just go, I'm going to do it here. That's right. right. You can't. There, there's so much homework behind that that it's unbelievable. And I tell people, just like the conversation we had with Ernie mm-hmm. uh, up at his place in Tennessee, I'm not going to walk on a place doing a consult and in one day, you go, okay, put your food plot right here. Mm-hmm. And anybody that does is doing you a disservice. I know there's a ton of guys doing habitat maps and laying out food plot maps, and they're studying your aerial photos, and they're they're placing fields based off of strictly an aerial. It, you need background information, where the deer are moving consistently. You know, where have bucks been harvested before? Is that a consistent place those bucks are moving? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your soil type, what's your slope, and things of that nature. So it, it is uh, – there's so many variables that have to come into play there. Uh, for me, that I, I think it's a – can be a multi-year process to mm-hmm. depend on where the best place mm-hmm. to place a successful bow hunting food plot. Right, because I'm going to tell you, I've, I've had some fields that were absolutely superb. They looked great. To me, they were in great locations. Mm-hmm. And yet, daylight activity on them was none. Mm-hmm. Like they'd be full of deer at night, but during the day, mm-hmm. no activity or very little activity. So, I like to find areas where deer are already naturally going to be and get my food plot as close to that as I can. Or, I tell people all the time if you can place a food plot in very close proximity to thick cover, mm-hmm. typically speaking, that's a good location. Now, you know, you're going to do things a little bit differently depending on access and things like that. You know, you can change that up. But I like to have my food very close by thick cover Mm. or areas that I know deer are traveling during the daylight hours or bedding in daylight hours. I don't want them to travel very far from where they're bedding to where they have to eat. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as the bow hunting aspect, you know, I like irregularly shaped fields, narrow fields. Because if you've got a field that's 200 yards across sure, <laughs> and you're trying to shoot a 30 or 40 yard, you know, area around you. Hey, archery hunters can do that now. <laughs> well, they can with crossbows and they can shoot a hundred easy, but, uh, in a leg, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, sorry. Anyway, if, if you, if you already have an area in mind, you know, maybe neck that 
neck that field down and have, mm-hmm. you know, two sections. Neck it down where those deer are going to travel by you, you mm-hmm. know, within bow range. Gotcha. Yeah, if, if we're building them from scratch, I mean, most of the time our projects are involving logging, but we'll mm-hmm. cut those fields out and we'll use either logging debris or field debris from stumping mm-hmm. and create pinch points where otherwise there wouldn't be any there. Mm-hmm. We pile that stuff and force deer to do certain things. And uh, in the past, we've actually built fences to push deer or funnel deer mm-hmm. by a stand location. Mm-hmm. Sure. And you can take advantage of natural features like mm-hmm. a, a blowdown. Let's say a tree blows down, mm-hmm. those deer are going to walk around that to come into the field. Sure. Just just be advised in about five years that blowdown is going to be gone. Yep. Right. That's true. It's going to rot, so you may have to put you another top there. <laughs> Do yep. something. It's not permanent. Nope. Nope. It's not permanent. So here's here's my take. I would never, ever give anybody advice on what to plant, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's not my wheelhouse. This is just me speaking from experience. I'm not as concerned about what you're planting and necessarily how, you know, time period and what, what all that stuff looks like. I, my number one, number one thing with planting a food plot and he's talking about for bow hunting is access. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. you cannot slip into that plot and out and out easily, if you don't have I a mean, preferably, um, multiple access routes, mm-hmm. multiple ways in and out of the same place based on the wind based on what you're seeing on your cameras Mm -hmm. you are shooting yourself in the foot and you're not you're not setting yourself up for success uh i have hunted again just like you were talking about a lush beautiful beautiful food plots that it's not that the deer don't use them necessarily Mm -hmm. it's that i can't get in there without blowing them out and i can't get out certainly as it gets dark in the evenings i definitely can't get out without blowing them out come on up in here Oh yeah! Oh, we got a What's up? Yeah, we got we got a live audience. Hey, Mason, off one. <laughs> How are you? Oh man, take a seat over here, man. But uh, I mean, it, access is just huge, and I don't like again. If it's the most beautiful lush plot you've ever seen in your life, but you can't hunt it, well, it's kind of defeating the purpose. In reality, know? access is number one. Yes, absolutely. You, you can have the best field there is if you blow deer in and out of it. No good to you. Right. So, anyway, that would be my thought is wherever it is that you think you want a food plot to be, think about how you're going to access that and how you're going to, you know what I mean, based on your method of travel, you know what I mean, how you typically would get to it. Mm -hmm. If that's not feasible, it's not efficient, you know, rethink that. We got to That's the first thing I look at when designing a new food plot. Mm -hmm. How are we going to access it? Yeah. And it needs to be a quiet way. Absolutely. Because uh, I, I personally hunt a very, very small piece of property in Marshall County that is exactly not what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has one way in and one way out, and it's not that there's not deer there. There's a few, and there's some that are decent. But you can't you can't get to it. You mm-hmm. know, you can't get to it without either blowing deer out on the way in or walking past where you hope the deer are going to come from later, mm-hmm. which is just as bad because, you know, as soon as they come out and catch your scent from where you've walked in, it's your toast. You know what I mean? At that point, it's just, mm-hmm. so I would say if I was building a food plot, that's, or, you know, for, especially for bow hunting where you've got to be preferably 30 yards and in, you've got to be able to access that thing. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt and I have talked my little place close to here to death 
and we think that that's one of the problems with a couple of locations is because we have such consistent photos of deer mm-hmm. in daylight and then when we're here to hunt there's none two days after they're right back in there in daylight that we've got to be walking by you know these deer but unfortunately there is no other access mm-hmm. yep. to that place now we're we're working on that but we need some logging activity right before we can rectify that well, that's another completely. that's but, a good point too though like these deer that you're getting on camera on any food plot you know they're not you know because i mean i'm getting them at at seven o'clock at night or i'm getting them at you know right after dark at you know six o'clock whatever mm-hmm. well they're not five miles away Mm-mm. Mm-mm. you know they're not far they're just waiting on darkness. They're inside half yeah. a mile. Yes. They're most of the time probably inside a quarter. I, I was going to say, yeah. I've, I've got one food plot that, that is one of those that I was talking about that is beautiful and I plant it every year and it's full of deer at night. I can go over there and hunt on the food plot morning or evening, mm-hmm. doesn't matter, and see one to five deer. I can get 150 yards off of that food plot in any direction and see 25. Yeah. And you're not going to see those deer. Mm-hmm sitting in the shooting house overlooking the food plot Mm -hmm. but if you get up above the cover that is adjacent to it there's just it's a highway of deer moving constantly all day long well it goes back to a very simple statement like deer are not generally stupid no (laughs) you know they they can pattern us just like we do them on Mm -hmm. occasion so um add or take away anything good pretty well got it the southern U podcast is brought to you by first south farm credit If you are looking to purchase land, it's highly likely that financing will be needed. The team at First South Farm Credit understands the ins and outs of the land buying process and can help you get the financing needed to secure your purchase. Whether you are looking for that dream cattle farm or that big piece of timber to chase deer and turkey on, First South Farm Credit can get it done. For more information, visit firstsouthfarmcredit.com. That's first, F-I-R-S-T, South. S-O-U-T-H Farm F-A-R-M Credit C-R-E-D-I-T dot com Alright, number four here. Uh, I thought this was a very interesting question too because I actually don't have anything to add to this one. (laughs) I would have to ask you guys. Uh, Number four, uh, how to improve slash hunt land that is mostly wetland or swamp. Mm. Uh, hunting it, I kind of have an idea, but and how to improve wetland, I don't know where to really start there. I, I just <laughs> call, that, Je- call Jeremy and list it. <laughs> yeah, sell it. there you go. There you go. Uh, Duck hole. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I, I've got a lot. I don't have a whole lot to say on this, but I grew up hunting in the Sipsy Swamp between here and Tuscaloosa. Great area. I mean, it's just loaded with game absolutely loaded with all kinds of game you've got waterfowl and deer and turkeys and freshwater fishing i mean it's just great but i wouldn't trade you 500 acres for five up here because of the water really yeah Mm -hmm. it's just so much harder to hunt you cannot access anything quietly that's true um in the winter months of course that's our wet months so Mm -hmm. there's water on everything Mm -hmm. um what you can do and where you can hunt travel corridors between slough beds or riverbanks um beaver dams anywhere that deer don't have to be in the water now they i think they're part aquatic down there because they don't mind swimming <laughs> they, yeah, right. they're used to it 
Yeah, they're used to it, but still, they'd prefer to stay on dry ground mm, if sure. they can. So, you know, just use the terrain features to your advantage to kind of nat- natural features to funnel deer, and that's where you need to be set up. Mm-hmm. If you can get on a beaver dam and have your, your you know, on a, a day where the wind's blowing your scent across the, the slough or the pond or the dam or whatever, mm-hmm. then, you know, you may catch deer moving back and forth. But um, we we didn't kill the kind of deer in that bottom land as good as it was and there's good deer down there and good numbers of deer mm-hmm. but we didn't kill the mature deer as consistently as we do in hill country yeah. I'd, I'd take hill country over bottom ground any day absolutely any yeah. day um uh, from a management standpoint and from an improvement standpoint a lot of times you're real limited i mm-hmm. mean number one if you're going to do significant work well you got to do it with machinery and you don't machines and water don't yeah go good they, they don't go well um the one thing that we have had luck doing and you know it's got to be dry enough to do it is logging activity and being selective on the trees that you're taking mm. so that you're opening up i mean most time your swamps are closed canopy forest mm-hmm. so you know or at least here i know in other parts of the country you've got all these bogs and whatnot that mm. are fairly open we don't have that much uh, unless it's been logged but go in and uh, we cut rows, just big open rows through big hardwood. A uh, couple of places specifically that I, that I can think of that we did that. And others, we just did big seed tree cuts. So we'd cut everything and leave a handful of oaks out there to, you know, obviously to uh, regenerate oak because that's what we were after mm. on those sites. But that opens up the forest floor it gets a lot more growth now obviously it's going to turn into a hardwood jungle at some point which is next to useless mm-hmm. um, i mean because you've got two thousand hardwood stems to the acre i mean you're not going to hunt that you know and any way shape or form i've seen some of that in action over in the mississippi delta um in both mississippi and arkansas mm-hmm. and we we did a, a workshop with the mdwfp when i worked over there and I mean, what they're able to accomplish as far as putting food and cover on the mm-hmm. ground, those bottom and hardwood systems is amazing. And it can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very expensive or. Well, what you do, like Jeremy was saying, is just either select cuts where you're selecting either certain species of trees or mm-hmm. um, certain classes of trees mm-hmm. to remove. And you're wanting to leave your hard mass trees. Um, or you can do. Or your desirable. Clear cuts. Yeah. Or yeah. you can do clear cuts. But either way, what you're doing is just trying to open up that canopy and allow growth at the forest floor and in an upland system you're going to come back through and you're going to burn that every few years mm-hmm. you you don't have that option in a bottomland system speaking. because they're much thinner barked trees they're not accustomed to fire they haven't adapted to fire and you'll damage those trees mm-hmm. they'll get rot at the base mm. we i w- went and looked at a piece of property last week that was burned on a pretty heavy rotation that was hardwood and we're about to have to go in and do a logging operation because all those trees are dying mm. now and it's god is a beautiful place beautiful hardwood stand is it bottomland hardwoods it's mixed mix. bottomland and upland um they just when you roll through a, a nice upland stand of hardwood that's red oak and white oak um, with some long leaf mixed in and there's 30 foot flame marks can't do that now hard, hardwood don't hardwood trees don't handle that well. I real well. tolerate that. Huh? The uh, the longleaf pine looks great, but mm-hmm. the hardwoods uh, they're smoked. Yeah, and we're we're gonna matter of fact we're our backs against the wall getting them down 
mm. before you know a meal's not going to take them anymore. Oh, really? You got enough rot. Oh, mm-hmm. gotcha. But uh, but yeah, I mean removing trees from the canopy and getting uh, food to the forest floor. Hey, the swamp will grow unbelievable amount of forage. Yes, it will. Um, but you know, just you got to understand that once you do that, you're going to be in a time period, you know, 10, 15 years down the road that you're going to have a place that's pretty well unhuntable. Uh, and it's going to be that way for a long period of time because mm-hmm. it takes hardwood so long. Uh, and it takes know, a lot mature. of acreage to do this because you can apply these principles to smaller acreages and you won't have that diversity of having some part of your stand as open hardwoods and some part of it being, you know, the the thickets that you're after for browse and for for bedding cover and you can't sell that to a logger mm-hmm. on smaller property you've got to have a lot of acreage to do it or it's not worth their effort yeah. right it, it's easier in the bottomland system with hardwood than it is pine i mean you you can you can cut 10 or 20 acres of the right hardwood mm-hmm. if it's not the right hardwood you can forget it right um but if it's the right hardwood yeah you can get 10 20 acres cut you call a logger down here and ask them to cut 20 acres of pine, they're just going to laugh at you. Mm-mm. They got their pick of the jobs. They're not coming out for that. Gotcha. Nope. Not happening. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, I I have had success hunting kind of swampy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've hunted stuff that was four inches. Everywhere that you I could see was at least four inches standing water. Um, one in particular around the Selma area. We were, uh, we're on this thing called a lodge like a bow hunting tournament type thing um two person teams there's 20 teams and basically everything's done by weight you know you harvest does and bucks too and they'll give out daily you know prize for the biggest of the day you know daily pot and then for the whole weekend all this kind of stuff a lot of fun but we went on one that was a uh, advertised as a rut hunt me and my dad and um i got in the swamp that uh it was raining that morning ended up having to um wait until the rain broke somewhat and said i want to be in the tree when the rain stops and so we did it finally stopped about 9 a.m and as soon as it did probably 10 minutes later three does come like you said you can't access this stuff you know mm-hmm. you can hear the deer coming when they're you know before you ever see them too so we I, these three does come out and thank the lord i I made a, a shot and it was by total accident. I'd forgotten my primary release and I had to go to my backup, which is a wrist strap. My primary is a thumb and that changes your draw length mm-hmm. a good bit. And so long story short, I end up pulling the shot way forward. Not what I was trying to do at all, but got it almost cut its heart in half. And uh, so, I mean, there's no blood trail, right? Cause it's water everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, but the, the deer makes it 15 yards out of sight and dies. But, uh, you talk about challenging in terms of just trying to, I mean, I don't know how you would really scout that, mm-hmm. you know, if it hadn't been the rut, I don't, you know what I mean? It may have been a whole lot more difficult hunt there, but um, I, I was able to throw a rope around that thing's neck and float it, mm-hmm. you know, get it, get it out. And uh, we waited in, you have to weigh them in at noon on the last day. And I made it with four minutes to spare <laughs> and got it weighed in and ended up winning me like 900 bucks. So it was awesome. <laughs> so Heck it was, yeah. It was awesome. Uh, but yeah, that stuff's very challenging. So I, I guess, yeah, from a, that was more, I guess the question was from a habitat improvement standpoint, is there much you can do? So that that's about, 
about it. It. I mean, there, there's probably some guys with some clever ideas out there. Uh, but if I'm looking to make a big impact, you know, I, that, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a big impact over a lot is of there, So to use a political term here, is there a way to drain the swamp, so to speak? Like, is there a way to like, I mean, sure. can, can, you, yeah. can you do that? Like, In certain places, absolutely. But uh, you run afoul of environmental law pretty quickly okay. there. Depending on where you are, acres and, you know, maps, you're going to have to go through core engineers and things like that. But okay. there, hey, look out in these ag fields down south Alabama. There's been many a swamps that's been that's put true. a drainage ditch through and the hardwood slicked off and mm-hmm. they're planting it in corn and soybeans. So, yes, there are, there are times that you can do things like that, but you've got to make real sure of where you're at mm-hmm. and to make sure gotcha. – there are no plants that that are going to be negatively affected that are threatened and endangered. I got you. Um, you can still convert things, but generally, you know how this world works. Mm-hmm. You you got to ask forgiveness, or you got to ask for permission, because if you go in afterwards and ask for forgiveness, generally you get a big hefty fine. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to go messing with the government on that kind of stuff. <laughs> so. Uh, that's good stuff too, man. We'll just keep right on uh, trucking along here. Another one, man. I, f- I keep saying every question's good, but I do. I like almost all of these because I love to hear what you guys have to say here. Which do you prefer, making plots or good food trees like chestnuts and persimmons? Which would you, if you had your choice, I guess, on a particular land, would you like rather a food plot? Yeah, would you rather plant a food plot or would you rather plant? And put your, I guess, you, I, again, I'm projecting, but same amount of money. Like, I've got a limited budget, and I can either go build a food plot with it, or I can buy trees. That's you know, an easy one. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I mean, I'm again, that may not be what they're asking, but I'm just trying to take it. It's like, which do you prefer, making plots or good food trees like chestnuts and persimmons? Go ahead, Jeremy. I, I'm going to go with the plots because I can put more food out over a longer period of time. But that's, I mean, that's just the quick and the short of it to me. Now, if you've got a food plot that's too small that you can't produce anything in it, then that that's different. You know, I, I would want to understand, you know, some other factors about a particular location. Sure. Uh, but if it's just, can I plant a plot or plant a bunch of trees? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with the plot. It depends. <laughs> so my answer is it depends on what is the most limiting no, factor you've there. you got to pick. Okay, I'm fixing to pick. <laughs> so if if <laughs> if wildlife openings or natural openings are limited on that property, I'm going with the openings every time. He's still dodging. If shut up. If they already <laughs> no, no, have. No, when you say wildlife openings, what do you what do you mean by that? I, I'm just saying like open ground that I have a the option of planting. I mean, so, so like I'm not an I'm not a big proponent of planting every acre you have available. Yeah. So sure. I, if but if you have that option, if you've got wildlife openings there, and that's not a limited a limiting factor, then I'm going to take advantage of some of those openings and plant hard mass trees or okay. soft mass trees. Um, but you know, I guess I'm, I agree more with Jeremy. Um, I'd rather take the acreage and put it in food plots that I can do something Here's with. Here's a good one. What? What would you rather do on a? Uh, You're fixing to hit my camera. Am I? Yeah. Well, I told you not to put it so close. Well, don't rock as much. Um, if it's you fired were, up, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. If you were on a uh, 
a big track, you know, large acreage, primarily hardwood, a lot of mass production, and you've got five plus percent acreage in food plots. What do you do? I mean, that's my target. Mm -hmm. So well, I know. So what do you do then? Make them bigger. <laughs> <laughs> if a hard mast is already out there, mm -hmm. then you know I may throw some soft mast producers around the edge of some of those food plots, but. Acreage is, I mean. Plant, planting sawtooth in a hardwood forest is kind of like peeing in the ocean. Well, yeah, I mean, not, that's I, right. But no, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, I know he didn't reference sawtooth specifically, right. but I'm just saying, like, from, like, from harvesting deer perspective, I have been much more successful hunting over acorns, you know, and, and persimmons all and stuff like that. It's all, all about, about, about the acorns. acorns. Now, I will say this, since you bring it up. Yes. If I'm in a sea of pine trees. And I think I'll live long enough to hunt over those acorns. Then I want to plant some acorns. Yeah, that's, oh, yeah. that's another thing too. I guess you're talking about like food plot is you know an immediate return. It is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's gonna you're gonna be able to see and hunt over something within a few months mm -hmm. versus trees. You're talking years and years. And like you said, hey, yeah. am I gonna if I even live long enough to get mm -hmm. to hunt over them? So it's another thing to consider. Like for me over here on my place, if I could knock a ten acre hole out in the pine stand. I'm going to plant clover or soybean, you know, something and like that. And he would wear deer slap yeah, out I, I don't, if he could e do even that. Though, even though hardwoods are limiting mm -hmm. or limited to me over there, I've still got enough mm -hmm. to be to go bow hunt and be successful. But see, his hardwoods are inaccessible. A lot of them they're are. They're tough. Because you got to drop that into the ravines to get there. And oh, your yeah. wind is just a – I start to say they're there, they're just not huntable. Right. right. Access again. That, well, you could make access and be fine. But like he said, because of the topography, you're never going to have a consistent wind mm -mm. where you, you're going to get a mature deer inside of 30 yards. They're going to smell you every single time. Right. I got you. And you yeah. shoot them down in there with a rifle. But. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, that's a little different game with archery stuff. But, yeah, I just think that was a interesting because um, early season, everybody gets all fired up about hunting over white oaks and persimmons and – all that kind of stuff. Hey, um, I'm exactly the oh, same way. Sure. I mean, then, I've, I've got a, I've got an order with, uh, oh gosh, Alan down at the, what? They're the wildlife, wildlife group. Group. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I, I can't even remember if they're company or group, but oh. uh, down there at Tuskegee, we're about to plant a bunch of hardwood and or hard mast and soft mast trees on a couple pieces of property, but. It's a 500-acre property with 45 or 50 acres of greenfield. Mm -hmm. yeah, they don't they don't really need any more green. No, that's a lot for that sample size, mm -hmm. I guess you're talking about. So, yeah, well, that's cool. That's pretty straightforward there. Um, I th we've kind of touched on this one already, but we'll, I guess, kind of go a little bit deeper here. Is thoughts on permanent stands or shooting houses on food plots specifically? Do you feel like that's a good idea? Do you do it? Do you not do it? <laughs> you know, or is that uh, something that people need to be mindful of? Are we going to answer every question with it depends? Yeah. I it mean, depends. Because <laughs> it does. It depends. It depends. It We're really all getting does. older. That could be a sponsor for the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Depends. Depends. <laughs> yeah. uh, um. Golly, he went there. He did. After the, the three weeks of stomach virus that went yeah. through all three families. Gosh, man. Gosh. We don't have to talk about it anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I prefer 
permanent stands that um, you can limit the amount of scent that's getting out of on on big fields or on you know food plots but they've got to be in the right place mm-hmm. and you've got to be able to get in and out without booger and deer mm-hmm. if you can't get in and out without booger and deer and it's just you know the old typical shooting house with window holes cut in it um sitting right on the edge of the food yeah plot. right on yep. right hey I, I love you to death i got a client that's got a five acre field in the Luckily, it's a redneck blind, but it's sitting in the center mm. of the field. Nice. And I see them do that in the Midwest all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't do that down here. Mm-mm. You, I don't you think can't so. do that he, down here. His property has so little um, human interaction as far as hunting goes, and they ride it all the time mm-hmm. that they see deer every time they go. But they ride two or three rangers around every single day unless it's just pouring down mm-hmm. and then they get in the cab ranger and ride some but <laughs> nice. uh they, they still see deer sitting in a shooting house in the middle of the field and killed mature bucks that mm-hmm. way uh, it all depends it's on just that. Not, what it's just not pressure it's pr- right pressure pressure has everything to do with it because we've got I've got shooting houses now on the majority of our food plots or off the edge that we can access pretty mm-hmm. pretty easily. But they may only get hunted once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. So if I spook deer once or twice a year, it doesn't matter. What I usually try to do is wait until the time's right. I know a good deer showing up. And go in there and shoot Just once. go in there and shoot him and be done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we should have some footage. Most of my footage is fairly useless because I don't ever kill anything. That's a fact. Um, but I've got a lot of footage of a couple of little shooting houses that I'm sitting in that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's just a little old shooting house with window holes knocked in the side. I am hunting them on the right wind. But in both of them, I can walk to the shooting house, get in it with deer standing there, and oh, they yeah. never know. Mm-hmm. They never and have I, a clue. I can get in and out without being noticed. Now, if you go in there in the wrong wind, you know, that's you're doing. Right. But there again, it depends. It depends. Yeah. Well, and I think that he was specifically about like permanent, you know, shooting houses or blinds or something like that, as opposed to like lock-ons or right something like that. Now, because I've got ladder stands that you mm-hmm. know on the edge of some food plots, and if I'm bow hunting, honestly, on a food plot, if I'm bow hunting, I like to have the option of uh, a climber or a saddle or something. Oh, I yeah. can just go throw up real Absolutely. quick and hunt, depending on the wind direction and all for sure man i you know it's one of those things it's not that i never that i didn't pay attention to the wind or anything i always have i feel like especially in my adult life but having something that allows you to go oh i know what the forecast calls for Mm -hmm. and then you get there and go well that's not right Mm -hmm. you know and have the ability to just make a move and it not be a big deal like man that's it's really nice to be able to to do that Mm -hmm. and those guys in the Midwest have no idea how lucky they are to have consistent wind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Here it's uh, it's a whirlwind. Yeah, it swirls and all. I know the time. Topog- everybody's got some topography, but we seem to never know what our wind is going to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it changes. And, and what I've seen, you know, a lot of times if the wind, I've got one stand. It's actually right over here. On the absolute best wind that you need to hunt the stand, you can't hunt it because it comes down through there and it seems like it's blowing oh, it is. yeah but it hits a terrain feature and and swirls it back around and it blows right down the other side of the field and i've i've witnessed it like you can you can watch the 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 leaves fall 
in November. And the leaves on this side of the field are coming down and they're falling this way and it looks so pretty. And then on the other side of the field, they're falling that way. <laughs> so I can sit in that shooting house and everything that walks in the field smells me, even though the wind's hitting me in my face. Uh huh. So I have to wait on the wrong wind because it doesn't hit that same terrain feature. And it just, it, it's, it's the dangest thing I've ever seen. But Sometimes the wrong wind's the right wind. It, yes. it really is. And I, I started paying more attention to it several years ago when I got into long range shooting with some buddies and figuring out that, hey, the wind right here isn't the same wind that's down there 200 yards. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Even on flat ground. Yep. Open flat ground. It may not be the same. Your bullet's hitting different wind oh, directions yeah. as it goes down A lot of different wind there. columns. So I, I – haven't here because all our fields are small and i'm relatively close things like that mm-hmm. but place i used to hunt a big property with big fields i had flags tied up so i could see you know there's mm-hmm. no way to know what it's doing over there but if i started seeing things that were looking like wind was changing and going to cause me a problem mm-hmm. with with them smelling me not shooting um just get up and leave yeah mm-hmm. i mean if the wind gets wrong and you're already there you still need to get your butt up and leave. Yep. Mm-hmm. I've had to yep. before. I've like, I've had deer blow at me, and then blow at me again and go, "Okay, I'm not doing anything good here. I mm-hmm. might as well leave." Like this is. And a lot <laughs> of people just sit there and stick mm-hmm. it out. They're like, "I'm here." Well, they're not smelling me because that's not what the wind's doing today. <laughs> it may be. They're blowing at something. Yeah. <laughs> I had deer behind the house when I killed that that last doe. What is today? It was on the 16th. Every single deer I saw, every deer came out and looked straight at that shooting house and blew or stomped or did all of the above and would run out of the field and come back and they're looking and I'm like, one, I haven't moved. I know they can't see me. I'm concealed, but something is awry. Something's not right. right. Nobody's even hunted in this shooting house. Mm-hmm. So they were smelling me. I have no doubt in my mind. I don't know what the wind was hitting me in my face. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was doing, but they were smelling me because they'd come out and they'd frolic around and do their deer things. And all of a sudden, it's like everybody in the field just all at the same time, like, uh-oh, we just hit something we don't like. This ain't right. Mm-hmm. And they'd all do that. And um, finally, I shot the doe before she had a chance to make it out of the field. That's right. <laughs> Shoot them. That's right. I, I, I tell you, one of, the, one of the neat things that social media and, you know, podcasts and stuff has brought to the forefront is different ways people, you know, combat that or what people mm-hmm. used to uh, do a lot of different things but when was one my father-in-law had done it for years so I grew up doing it you know hunting several years but I had never seen anybody in the mainstream really do much of it till the guys the hunting public had the little pouch with the milkweed uh, milkweed yep man I've been doing that mm-hmm. since the early 90s yeah. when I started hunting right and I don't my father-in-law had a it looked like a little can of snuff. I, I, I guess it was mass-produced yeah. back then. But it had a little milkweed seed and had just a little hole in the center of it. And you could reach down in there and, and pull them up and drop them off. And the, the lid would slide. It just had a little notch in it to slide shut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't seen anybody doing that in years until they did. Yeah. Uh, but something that you can put in the wind column and watch yep i highly recommend having that i've even seen um i can't remember the name of the company but they didn't make it's like uh it's vapor you know like yeah you know mm-hmm. and you just hit a little puff of that little vapor and watch it do its thing in the wind and that's and stuff. that's great but well i mean i understand it, dis- it dissipates sure right i want to watch quick. it for a while right. yep. i want to see what it does for mm-hmm. a while the the little 
puff bottles that's got yep. i'm guessing was that baby, baby powder, powder cornstarch something, something like yeah, that yeah. um you know you just puff it and you can see it but it dissipates once it gets you know really 10 15 yards from you, you can't see it much mm-hmm. but if you can see that thing floating way out there uh i mean if you got good eyes i don't have good eyes anymore i mean you can see that stuff for 100 yards mm-hmm. if if you're really paying attention and watching or mm-hmm. turn two or three loose so you can kind of mm-hmm. kind of follow them for sure uh, it's amazing what the wind does <laughs> yeah it does crazy stuff for sure absolutely The Southern U Podcast is brought to you by Vitalized Seed. What sets Vitalized Seed Mixes apart from other companies is their ability to keep producing throughout multiple periods of the year. The symbiotic relationships between the different varieties support soil health while being extremely attractive to a variety of wildlife and important pollinators. If you're looking for a product that is going to benefit all of your wildlife and help you put deer and turkey in the freezer, ask your local seed dealer for Vitalized Seed. For more information, visit VitalizeSeed.com. That's V-I-T-A-L-I-Z-E-S-E-E-D.com. Um, let's see, number seven here. Next to last question is thoughts on blind calling and what times to use your call. I know we've kind of talked about this mm-hmm. a little bit during the, the rut episode. Um and basically all of us pretty much agree, just don't do it. In the yeah, you know? I, I don't really blind call down here much. I, I, I gave up on that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've like I said before, I've rattled in one deer in my lifetime in Alabama, and I had to shoot him because that was the – I can't believe I, that worked. I had to shoot him. So. I, I'm going to pull back on that a little bit because I've hunted a lot in some other southeastern states. I had it work fairly well in Tennessee, you mm. know, through the years. Uh, we used to hunt a place on the Mississippi River south of Vicksburg. Uh, it worked fairly well over there. Now here, uh-uh. no, uh, especially not on this place. It's close. It's got so many members next by or next to us in the club. It, <laughs> God, like the <laughs> you can you can hear them all over the place. Public land, if you get close enough. But the little can, yeah. yeah. I mean, it makes the same noise every time you turn it over. How many times do you think a deer hears that in its lifetime? Right. I mean, hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure around here with, with a lot. the number of hunters that's in the woods, public land and private. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could tell easily when I was in Kansas this year, there was a guy that walked by me one morning. He never knew I was there. I had one guy walk. 45 yards in front of me and one guy 12 yards behind me and they both went the same way they got down there and about 30 minutes later i heard one guy he got his rattle bag out you know and they don't even sound like antlers like mm-hmm. it just sounds like you're beating sticks together beating it, plastic it sounds awful which is what you're doing right exactly and then he would <laughs> and i just got down and left i'm like this is just ridiculous so um you know if i can tell the difference yeah, I guarantee you, deer can tell the difference. For sure, you you've got to catch a deer in the southeast, amped up out of his mind. Yes, in my opinion, to respond to that type calling. Mm-hmm. What what I have had luck with in the southeast is rattling, you know, with with actual antlers, mm-hmm. and had better luck with it on the ground than in the tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can I can think back to two or three deer 
that I rattled in, I mean, to the tree I was sitting in, in, in Tennessee. And, you know, it's not quote unquote blind calling because I could see the deer, but my gosh, you know, hundreds of yards away, he, he, he don't hear me yet, but mm-hmm. he's, he's moving this way. And as soon as he, you know, two of them for sure, cause I watched them for so long, they just caught a little bit of that noise. And they, you know, it just piqued their interest just enough mm-hmm. to to turn them and come my way instead of the way they were they were walking. And then you can throw something else at them that's a little quiet just to keep their interest. A lot of times they'll they'll come in, mm-hmm. um, but just that being in the woods and just banging things together and and blowing <laughs> on those calls loud, no, because you can't see fifty yards. You hit one of those grunt calls that sounds like you're blowing in a bullhorn. Yeah, I know. Deer going another way, mm-hmm. yeah. in my opinion. Want mm-hmm. something that sounds like a T-Rex walking through the woods or something. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just don't work. And like I said before, I've, that little small arrowhead call that I've got, it's the only thing I've ever grunted one in, and I saw it before I ever did. Um, my buddy Jake grunted it first, and he came in to about 45 yards or so, and kind of lost interest and started to go away. Jake grunts again, doesn't pay him any attention. I grab mine out, mm-hmm. grunt, and he immediately, he's at 60 yards and turns around and busts through briars. You know, just, I mean, he was on a string coming yep. straight to us. And uh, then as soon as, you know, he we still don't get a shot, deer kind of sort of spooks and goes off down to the bottom again. Jake grunts. I grunt. He don't care. He just he's he's leaving. We're both. Mm-hmm. And I finally, I said, uh, "Hey Jake, have you got a a bleat on your call?" And he was like, uh, "Yeah." And I said, well, "Just bleat at it. Like just mm-hmm. throw something at it that it hasn't heard yet." And so he does. <laughs> and here it comes. Mm-hmm. You know, just in a world, it comes around behind us, and we end up not getting a shot at it, but came in our direction three different times. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, but that is by far that's like. That is the only success story I have. You know what I mean? Uh, nothing else. <laughs> right, and I'm not going to say it don't work. No, I, mean, it, I wouldn't it say it doesn't for some work. some people, it but it doesn't seem to be a consistent yeah. way of successful hunting in the South. It, it, <laughs> right, it depends. That's right. That's the next, it, it, that, that's the next T-shirt. That's, yeah, yeah, it depends. <laughs> and it, it depends on what state of mind you catch that deer in. That's right. true. Um, they they can be amped up, and I think you can call them in with a bucket and a wood spoon. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, but you know, you catch them in the wrong frame of mind, and there's there's not anything you can do Mm-mm. to get them to come in. And I I have had uh, two instances in the south where I've heard a buck roar. You know, our buddy I Cody. I have too. I have uh, too. Asked, he said, "Have y'all ever heard a buck do that?" And we're like, "Well, yeah, and so have you." He's like, "Yeah, but I hadn't heard it here." Right, it's like I, you know, I heard it here, and I'm like, okay, well, that is kind of funny because we have those conversations often with people, like, you know, snort wheezing and yeah. buck roars and all these things that Midwest hunters are used to those vocal vocalizations. You don't hear a lot of that here, not much. No, Mm-mm. I've heard three snort wheezes, I think, in my whole life here heard, in Alabama. I have heard, and I wouldn't have known that it was an actual deer if I hadn't saw it. Like you know, what wasn't watching it when it happened, but I've I've heard a couple fawns bleat for mm-hmm. their mom like mm-hmm. to kind of get a little too far away from mom mm-hmm. you know whatever yeah. i've heard that a couple times that's it i've never you know <laughs> about it uh all right very last question here um again i'm gonna sort of project on this a little but this is the quote any better land management than what's natural I, i'm assuming that means is there any better 
land, uh, any, I'm assuming that's probably related to nutrition, probably. Well, I think I know what it, it could mean one of two things. You could interpret that. Is there anything better than just letting the environment do what the environment yes, does? Yes, I think that's kind of being what he's in a natural at. state. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely, man's yeah. been man's been manipulating the environment ever since the first two humans were on this earth. Yeah, it's <laughs> so. um, you, you can always accentuate what or improve what Mother Nature's giving you, but now I don't think you're going to do any better than keeping natives at the forefront of right. that. Now there's yep. There's some times where you're gonna want to plant a food plot that your your native vegetation is not gonna do exactly what you're after at, at that particular time for mm-hmm. that particular reason. Um, but most of the time, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, keeping natives at the forefront is what what you should do. Habitat first. Habitat first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I mean again a little bit of a projection, but. I'm going to say if you're talking about, like, would I rather my property have native vegetation, native growth for them to eat, or should I go fill up a bunch of protein feeders and put those out for them? Go native. Go native, right? I mean, but um, we've had we actually had several people reach out on on Instagram specifically and say, is it – does that hurt anything? Is it bad to put protein feeders out? And I'm like, it doesn't hurt anything, I don't think, but – if that's all you got and you don't mm-hmm. have the habitat to support it and you're putting all your eggs in the basket mm-hmm. of the protein pellets, you're going to be really disappointed if, in yep. your If results. I had to choose one or the other, mm-hmm. I'm going to put my money behind figuring out how I can do uh, management on my ground mm-hmm. to promote natives versus in planting food plots and filling feeders. Mm-hmm. Yes, all day. And all the studies back that up. Yep. If you can improve habitat – that is what can change a deer herd mm-hmm. versus, I mean, it's called supplemental feeding because it is just that. It is a supplement to what's already there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you go all the way back to Harry Jacobson's study from MSU years and years ago, I think that the best gains that they saw out of a wild deer herd with supplemental feed was, what, one and a half, two percent gain, two percent high? No, I think I think it was right around two. Two percent? So, I mean, you're looking it at a wasn't very good. body mass increases and antler increases of 2%. To me, the amount of money you're spending yeah, on supplemental feed is not worth lot. that. That's a lot of money. Now, Especially if you do it the way that people recommend doing it. Right. And, and in if closure. If you're managing well, right. even if you are managing really well and then throw supplemental feeding on top, the percent gain is still low. Mm. Right. It's still really low. But you know, that may be the last step that you need to take to get to where you're trying to get. Right. Now, you you flip that and you add supplemental feed to high deer densities in enclosures, and it can make substantial big, gains. Big difference. Mm-hmm. Huge difference because those deer typically don't have as much availability mm-hmm. in native habitat, mm-hmm. native browse. And there's, there's plenty of research out there. You mentioned putting – you know, feeders out, you know, around if it's in good habitat or, or bad. But uh, that, the research has shown that when you put the feeders out, deer are getting, you know, quite a bit of what they need there, especially in an enclosed situation. But they will start selecting the highest quality food that they've got naturally mm-hmm. and can actually degrade your habitat yep. further oh, yeah. by selecting for that and then those those plants not being able to reproduce mm-hmm. or not being able to reproduce in the volume that they need 
to continue to be successful. And over time, uh, all can, the scrub can, stuff starts to grow. Yeah, they can <laughs> yeah, degrade right. the habitat, and you lose out on a on a really good and viable plant composition or community that you need. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to grow your deer. Gotcha. So that supplemental feeding can be a double edged sword. Yeah. Depending on if you're doing other things correctly. It well, depends. I mean, I think I think most people it's <laughs> it just. Does. I think that most people just want to feel like I'm I'm doing something proactive. Like I'm doing mm-hmm. something to try to help. And even if I I might not, you know, in their minds, like I can't pay someone to come in here and do a full consult and a full management plan. But, well, you know, I can spend some money on some feed. I can throw yep. some, you know, I can fill up some feeders out there. And it's like, well. I'll go get me know. a trophy rock and a yeah. bag of trace mineral salt yeah. and I've done something. Exactly. Yep. And it's like, well, you know, hey, look, teach, you know, yeah. teach his own. But and I'm, I don't want to hurt any, I'm going to hurt feelings when I tell you this. You're not doing anything other than putting an attractant out there by mm-hmm. putting out the trophy rocks and all the minerals and stuff. You're not helping the deer. I mean, yes, they come to it. Yes, they use it. But you're not adding body weight. You're they not adding anything. The vast majority from the plants. Exactly. Do. If you look at, and I, I, I said this on Michael Perry's podcast, if you will just take a look at how many hours out of the day deer are spending at your feed sites or mineral licks mm-hmm. versus munching around on native vegetation, it is a very small percentage. Well, mm-hmm. it's, they get 80 to 80 five percent of their nutrition outside of anything that a human's doing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. plain and simple yep yeah cool well that's good the last part of that little question there was like i'd love to hear you guys discuss with kyle from native habitat project oh yeah <laughs> you know, we, may, we, may, uh, we can reach out to kyle yeah, we, we'll get, we may we'll, have to do that up. i think we're both going to be in nwtf or yeah. something we may hook up there or something like that but that's pretty much it. That's the viewer uh, request segment. If we didn't answer your question, it's because you didn't send one in. Because <laughs> that was uh, we we got several, but um, we'll probably do some more of this in the future. I really enjoyed these types of uh, episodes because it's what you guys seem to care about, and we, you know, that's kind of what we're here for. So, mm-hmm. um, you guys stay tuned. I guess the next time you'll hear from us, hopefully, will be at uh, NWTF uh, the fifteenth. Is that when we're going up? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, February yeah, I think, 15th. I think we – I'll get there on the 14th to get set up, and then y'all come in mm-hmm. there too after that. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll see you guys uh, up there. Stop by. Uh, I, we're not totally sure yet. We might have some merch up there. I don't even know if you guys want any merch for this other new on it. Acorns. Any of that kind it of depends. stuff. It depends. It depends. Yeah, we may have that on there too. Uh, that'd be a great shirt, by the way. would <laughs> be <laughs> <laughs> um yeah we'll have some stuff up there come say hi at least you know um we tell us we're idiots yeah tell us how stupid we are that's fine we can handle it yep we can we're big boys most of us (laughs) (laughs) that's not not. (laughs) uh we appreciate you guys listening and um we look forward to to meeting you guys out there at nwtf and if you guys have any questions or concerns, you can definitely message us uh, through Instagram or Facebook. You can also reach us. Uh, I don't say this enough, but uh, email is info at com. You can send stuff, uh, request that way too. But uh, hopefully we say this a lot. It's not just a hunting podcast. Um, we've talked about hunting a lot here lately because that's the season we're in. But very shortly, uh, as deer season in the south kind of comes to a close, we're going to switch gears and really start doing more. We'll, st- we'll talk turkeys, of course, but we're going to switch and really talk more habitat and you know land improvement management, that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. 
Um, and hopefully we'll have some more digital content on YouTube stuff to show you on that for prescribed burns and site preps and all kinds of cool stuff too. So hang in there. Uh, we're, uh, we're going to make it happen. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time.